Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org or text WELCOME to 231-261-1112. As we dive in this morning, let's talk about some real-life stuff, okay? And the real-life stuff is this on the screen. Subway or Jimmy John's? Um, Where are my Subway people? If you had to choose this morning, raise those hands high. You are my Subway people. All right, put those down. Uh, Where are my Jimmy John's people? Ooh, it's close. It's close. Now, of course, the real answer to the question would be the Blue Heron Cafe, right? But I didn't want to lump their superior quality of that establishment with the others. Blue Heron is in a class by itself. And I highly recommend the lunch special where you get sandwich, soup, salad, and a cookie, okay? All together. So anybody hungry? Yeah? All right. Why all of this talk about sandwiches? Well, because Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 35, it's a sandwich. It's a sandwich. In fact, this is the first of four sandwiches that Mark has in his gospel. And what do you need to make a sandwich? Well, you need two pieces of bread, one for the top, one for the bottom, and then you need the meat in the middle. Well, today's passage is the bread of Mark's sandwich. This is what we got for the bread. We got Mark 3, 20 through 21. The bread is opposition from Jesus's family, the first part, where they're going to make the declaration that Jesus is insane. And then the bottom piece of bread for our sandwich, you got to jump down to verses 31 through 35. That bottom piece of bread is opposition from family part two. Again, the family of Jesus making the accusation that Jesus is insane. We won't get to the meat of the sandwich until after Easter. We're going to take a break from Mark next week. We have an Easter celebration message about Easter making all things new. But the meat of the sandwich, we go back to verses 22 through 30, which is opposition from religious leaders where they're going to make the accusation that Jesus is satanic. That famous passage that we all wrestle with and we have questions about known as the unpardonable sin. That's the meat of this first of Mark's four sandwiches. Now, the question is, why would Mark construct the text this way? Why does he make a sandwich like this? And the answer is this. The sandwich, also known as bracketing, it's a little fancier term for it, but it's a literary device where two related stories are used to make a similar point. The sandwich is a literary device where two related stories are used to make a similar point. And those, those stories become interwoven to make a stronger case or a stronger point. Now think about it this way. Um, you can eat bread by itself, right? It's called toast, and it, it's good. Um, you can eat meat by itself, and that's fine. That's good. But when the bread and the meat become interwoven into a sandwich, that's much, much better, is it not? So it is here. Mark makes a sandwich, interweaving these stories together to make a stronger point than they would have been by themselves. With that in mind, would you please stand with me as we read the bread of our sandwich this morning, starting in verse 20. 
It says, then Jesus went home and the crowd gathered again so that he could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying, he's out of his mind. Now we fast forward to verse 31, the bottom piece of the bread. And his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him and a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Father, this is a challenging passage of Scripture, and we especially need your help in unpacking it and then applying it. And so, God, would you just give us clarity of thought? Would you allow your Holy Spirit to speak to us in some very specific and personal and profound ways today? We love you. We thank you for your word. May it come alive to us today. I ask for your help in my role in this. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So again, Mark 3, 20 through 35 is a sandwich. The bread, the first top part is verses 20 through 21. Opposition from family, where they make the accusation that Jesus is insane. And then that bottom piece of bread, verses 31 through 35, still that story of opposition from family, making the accusation that Jesus is insane. And so... Jesus faces opposition from his family. It has two parts to it, really. First of all is their accusation in verses 20 through 21, and then his answer in verses 31 through 35. Their accusation in verses 20 through 21, and his answer in verses 31 through 35. So let's first consider their accusation. And uh, back in verse 20, the text very simply says, Then Jesus went home. Where was home for Jesus at this point? Where was his home? Well, it was Capernaum. Again, we've been kind of camping out lately in the region of Galilee and um, passing through this city of Capernaum on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee, about 30 miles from Jesus' boyhood home of Nazareth and about 120 miles from the holy city of Jerusalem, It's likely that Jesus was staying at the home of Peter and Andrew, where you'll remember that Jesus had earlier healed Peter's mother-in-law of a fever. And so, if you remember from last week, after teaching to tens and thousands of people from a boat, because the crowds were pressing in on him so much, and then Jesus going up on a mountain and calling his 12 disciples, his 12 apostles, here, Jesus retreats to his temporary home in Capernaum. Back to verse 20. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. Problem of the crowds, did it? Locating to Peter's home in Capernaum did not solve the problem of the crowds, did it? Um, They just kept coming and coming and coming to the point that Jesus and his apostles were so busy that they could not even eat. The needs and demands for his attention were simply too great, and it was beginning to take a toll on them physically. Verse 21 goes on to say, "Then, and his family heard about it. His family heard about it. Ever wonder about the the family of Jesus? 
Um, it must have been a fascinating dynamic when you think about what it was like for the family of Jesus as they interacted together. Did you know that Jesus had brothers and sisters? Technically half brothers and sisters, right? Because Joseph was not the father of Jesus. Well, these brothers and sisters of Jesus are mentioned in two passages in the New Testament. Uh, first of all, Matthew thirteen fifty five. It says, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And then in Mark's gospel, Mark 6, 3, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. So clearly from Scripture, we see that Jesus had brothers and sisters. Here's a I believe, a teachable moment for us, however. The Roman Catholics have a doctrine known as the perpetual virginity of Mary. Raise your hand if you've heard of that before. The perpetual virginity of Mary. And according to this Roman Catholic doctrine, it states that Mary never had sex with a man and therefore would have had no other children other than Jesus. Yet, we see the Scriptures very plainly, very clearly tell us otherwise. And so when push comes to shove, in Roman Catholic life, what has authority? Scripture or tradition? Tradition. So when it comes to an issue like whether or not Mary had children, that may not be a huge deal. It's not of great doctrinal importance. But what about when it comes to other issues of greater significance, such as the gospel and salvation? Then it becomes a huge deal. Teachable moment is this. We must always, always, always return to Scripture alone as our authority. Amen? Amen. Okay. Last week, we talked about the fact that a great crowd gathered. The news about Jesus had gone viral from Tyre and Sidon in the north to the region of Idumea in the south and everything in between, including Jesus' hometown of Nazareth, where his mom and brothers and sisters lived. And undoubtedly, they heard the reports of the crowds numbering in tens of thousands. They heard the reports of the miracles. They heard the reports of the Jewish religious leaders plotting his death and the reports that he wasn't eating. And finally, they'd heard enough. And so they traveled that 30 miles from Nazareth to Capernaum, at which point we read in verse 21, And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Now that's surprising, is it not? You would think that if anybody would understand the identity and mission of Jesus, it would be who? His family. After all, um, before Jesus was born, you remember that Mary had been told by an angel in Luke chapter 1, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and most high, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be called great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So certainly Mary should have gotten it, right? Should have known better. And what about his brothers? You know, they grew up with Jesus, and certainly that as this Jewish family, as these kids were taught the Torah, they were also, I'm sure, taught that their brother Jesus would be fulfilling its messianic prophecies. And yet, John chapter 7, verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. 
Not even his brothers believed in him. How tragic. And think about how lonely that must have been for Jesus. How lonely his own family Jesus misunderstood by his own family. But the good news is, and many of you know this already, this did eventually change. It it tells us in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, again, this is after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, after the ascension, we have um, a group of believers in the upper room at Pentecost, and it says in Acts 1.14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Mary and the brothers of Jesus were present in the upper room praying at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came in power and the church was born. And of course, we know that James, the brother of Jesus, went on to become a leader in the church in Jerusalem and also wrote the book bearing his name, and that Jude, the brother of Jesus, wrote the book bearing his name. But interestingly, it was not until after the resurrection that Jesus' brothers truly believed. And here in Mark 3.21, they accuse him of being crazy and want to take him away. Well, what specifically were their concerns? I think there were actually differing concerns among the family members regarding Jesus and his perceived insanity. First, we have a mother, Mary, concerned for her son's well-being. A mother concerned for her son's well-being. After all, the text says, he's not eating. So busy, can't even eat. And that will get a mother's attention. Will it not? Are you eating? There was an interesting scene um, in The Chosen. Many of you have have watched um, episodes in that series where after a long day of ministering to the crowds, Jesus literally stumbles back to his tent in absolute exhaustion, reminding us that in addition to being fully divine, Jesus was also fully human, meaning that he did get tired and he did get hungry. So like any good mom, Mary is concerned for her son's well-being. The siblings, however, they're another story. The siblings are concerned for the family's reputation. The siblings are concerned for their family's reputation. When we we get to the meat of the sandwich on April 16th, we'll encounter Mark 3.22, which says this, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. Now, consider the significance of this. The scribes, these are religious leaders of the Jews, people held in high esteem in that culture, in that society. And these people accuse Jesus of being possessed by Satan. And as a family member, that's humiliating, right? That's a terrible reflection on the family name. And so they don't like that one bit. They don't want to be associated with it. So they accuse Jesus of being crazy, and they come to take him away. Which brings to a close the top piece of bread of our sandwich, which is their accusation. Now we move on to the bottom piece of bread, his answer. The answer of Jesus to his family in verses 31 through 35. So jump ahead. We'll go back to that earlier section, the Sunday after Easter. But right now, verse 31, it says, 
And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now be honest with me. How many of you think this comes across as a bit rude or uncaring on Jesus' part? Raise your hand. You're afraid to say, oh, Jesus was rude. Um, or at least disrespectful to his mother. Is that maybe a little more palatable? Uh, the situation reminds me a bit of back in Luke 2.49, where 12-year-old Jesus became separated from his parents which understandably created quite a panic for them. And when they finally found 12-year-old Jesus, where was he? He was in the temple. And it says in Luke 2.48, And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. Well, I think we've got a similar situation here in Mark 3 where Mary and the brothers, they don't understand. And so Jesus has a choice to make at this point amidst the standing room only crowd in Peter's house. Um, here are his options, I think, as I see it. Option number one, go with Mary and his brothers. But what's the problem with that option? Well, he then appears to affirm their accusation that he's crazy, right? That he's insane. The religious leaders will say, aha, who knows Jesus better than his own mother? She thinks he's crazy and has taken custody of him. That explains everything, right? Well, clearly that's not an acceptable option. Option number two, use their request to see him as a teachable moment. Use their request to see him as a teachable moment, and that's what Jesus chooses to do. Jesus uses this as an opportunity to teach three truths about the heavenly family in contrast to the earthly family. Let me say that again. Jesus uses this opportunity to teach three truths about the heavenly family in contrast to the earthly family. First of all, the heavenly family is preeminent. The heavenly family is preeminent. By preeminent, I mean that it takes priority over our earthly families. And that's hard for us to swallow in this culture. All right? We, we put our families way, 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 way up there. And in a certain sense, we should, but listen carefully. Listen to some shocking statements that Jesus made. First of all, in Matthew 10, 37, where he said, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Again, that's hard to take. That's very countercultural for us. That's not typically how we think. Well, how about this one? If you thought that one was hard, Luke 14, 26, Jesus said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What do we do with that? Are we really supposed to hate the members of our earthly families? 
Well, I think to truly understand the point that Jesus is making here, and I believe he's using hyperbole or overstatement to make a very important point, it's helpful perhaps for us to look at the positive side of his point. This is the negative side of that coin. The positive side of it is this. So much. Jesus, so much. So much that everything else, including our earthly families, pales in comparison. We are to love Jesus so much that everything else, including our earthly families, pales in comparison. Now, does that mean we are to neglect our earthly families? Absolutely not. The Scriptures have a lot to say to us about the stewardship of our earthly families, how husbands and wives are to love each other, how we are to parent our children, how we are to provide for our earthly families. A lot to say. You'll remember that at the end of his life, when Jesus was hanging on the cross... John 19, 27, then Jesus said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Interesting that even in death, hanging from a cross, hands nailed to the cross, feet nailed to the cross, in the midst of it all, what's Jesus concerned about? His mom. His mom. He wanted to make sure that she was going to be taken care of. Again, emphasizing for the fact of us that our earthly families absolutely do matter. Further, the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 5.8, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Strong words from the Apostle Paul. So clearly, according to Jesus, our earthly families matter. We are to invest in them, steward them, love them, take good care of them. However... The heavenly family, the family of God, brothers and sisters, that is preeminent. In part because while earthly families are temporary, heavenly families are eternal. Did you know that? You know, it's an interesting thing. Christy will be my earthly wife until death do us part. But she will be my heavenly sister for all eternity. Right? Such is the nature of the heavenly family, and Jesus teaches that it is to be preeminent. It is to have priority. The second lesson that Jesus teaches about the heavenly family is this. The heavenly family is open to all. The heavenly family is open to all. Look again at verse 35. He says, For whoever, Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. That word, whoever, is a beautiful word. It tells us that the heavenly family is open to anyone and to everyone. No disqualifiers. It doesn't matter where you've come from, where you've been, what you've done, whether you're rich, whether you're poor, what race you are. None of it matters. There is a place in the heavenly family for you. It is for whoever. The means by which we enter the heavenly family is found in Romans 8.15. It says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So we enter the family of God, the heavenly family, through adoption. 
God chooses us. We respond to his gracious offer to be saved, turning from our sins and turning to him alone for forgiveness, at which point we become children of God with all the rights and privileges thereof, including inheritance. Isn't that awesome? My God owns everything. I'm counting on a really good inheritance. So, Jesus is in the midst of using this as a teachable moment as his family seeks him, as they accuse him of being insane. He's teaching three truths about the heavenly family. The heavenly family is preeminent. It is eternal. It is to take priority. The heavenly family is open to all. And number three, the heavenly family is obedient. The heavenly family is obedient. Whoever does the will of, whoever does the will of God. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. In Mark 3, let's just be blunt. Mary and his brothers were not aligned with the will of Jesus, were they? They were acting in ways inconsistent with members of the heavenly family. Contrary to Jesus. Contrary to his will. And so Jesus rebukes them in this teachable moment. And I think... This stood out to me this week. I think we underestimate just how stinging and strong this rebuke by Jesus was meant to be. Remember our sandwich. Let's go back to our sandwich for a minute. What is the meat of the sandwich? Opposition from religious leaders who make the accusation that Jesus is satanic. Remember, Jesus is tying these two stories together to make one strong point And so Jesus is tying his family together with the religious leaders who are calling him satanic. And when Jesus then will teach about this thing called the unpardonable sin, again, this is all lumped together with Jesus' family. That's a little bit different way to look at what's going on here. The point is that true members of the heavenly family are committed to God's will and not their own. True members of the heavenly family are committed to God's will and not their own. What were Mary and the brothers committed to? Their own will. What were the religious leaders committed to? Their own will. This was not the behavior of members of the heavenly family. It was actually satanic behavior. And you might say, well, that's a strong statement. Well, check this out. Remember when Peter tried to assert his own will by talking Jesus out of going to the cross? Do you remember when that happened? And in Matthew 16, 22, um, Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke Jesus, saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. I think you could take those words from Jesus to Peter, and you could apply them to Mary and to his brothers. Because the same thing is happening. Their own will, their own agenda, not God's will. And ultimately, when it's contrary to Jesus, it is for Satan. Well, in Mark 3, again, the family of Jesus is doing the very same thing. They are a hindrance to Jesus. In contrast, the members of the heavenly family are obedient. They are aligned with the will of Jesus and not their own. So again, Jesus uses this occasion to teach three truths about the heavenly family. It is preeminent, it is open to all, and it is obedient. Now, 
Let's uh, finish up by looking at application and answer our question, how should we then live? Three things. First, um, first thing is exclude normal. Exclude normal. Ever feel like you're this picture right here? Square peg, round hole, like you just don't fit in this world? Like Jesus was square peg. You should, right? You should. That's how Jesus was. Square peg, round hole, didn't fit. First Peter 2.11 reminds us, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your souls. I want you to zero in on those words, foreigners and exiles. Some of your translations um, will read strangers and aliens. The whole idea is we don't belong here. This world is not our home. So stop trying to be normal. Normal is not godly. Normal is not like Jesus. Jesus was abnormal. We need to be abnormal. The world's values and systems run contrary to the kingdom of God. And so as members of the heavenly family, we will naturally be out of step with the world. Again, square pegs, round holes. So don't lament this. Don't fight this. Embrace it. Celebrate it. Understand that part of what it is to follow Jesus is to be viewed as weird from the world's perspective. And if you find yourself fitting into the world pretty well, let that be a warning sign to you. Your identity is to be that of a foreigner and exile, a stranger and an alien, not a comfortable resident. And you know what? So much of our anger at times about stuff, whether it's politics or what's going on in the world, is because it's not going our way, and so we don't feel comfortable. Um, It's okay for us to be uncomfortable and for us not to fit in, for us not to get our way. So, exclude normal. Number two, expect to be misunderstood. Expect to be misunderstood. Just as Jesus was misunderstood. Just as Jesus was misunderstood even by his very own family. Have you ever been misunderstood by your family because of your faith? It's painful. It's hard. Interestingly, some of the greatest heroes of the faith were misunderstood to the point that they were labeled insane, just like Jesus. The Apostle Paul, he received such an honor um, in Acts chapter 26, verse 24. It says, And as Paul was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Jesus was accused of being crazy. Paul was accused of being crazy. And then further, D.L. Moody, the great evangelist, he was known as Crazy Moody because of his zeal for the Lord and evangelism of the lost, because he lived his life out of step with the world. That's why he was called Crazy Moody. And so likewise, church, we should expect to be misunderstood. We should, be expect it, we should expect at times to be labeled as crazy, just like Jesus, Paul, and D.L. Moody. That's pretty good company, right? And that misunderstanding 
as you know, might just lead to division in your earthly family. Boy, that's hard. Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 10, 34. Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever, loses, or whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's a big dose of reality. The truth that our participation in the heavenly family just might create division in our earthly families. But then Jesus encourages us with these words from the Sermon on the Mount. If you're experiencing that firsthand right now, be encouraged with this. Jesus said of you, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. If you're being persecuted, if you're experiencing that kind of division that we're talking about, if you've been labeled as crazy or weird or abnormal because of following, blessing will remain. Because in God's eyes, you are blessed, and his blessing will remain on you. There's nothing better than the blessing of God. And so, exclude normal, expect to be misunderstood. Number three, experience the family of God. Boy, how we underestimate the significance of the family. I, I hope that as, as we're looking at this, you're like, oh, wow, that puts a whole new perspective on the significance of the church, the family of God, its preeminence, its priority. As we said earlier, um, the place where this begins is adoption, to respond to God's gracious invitation to salvation, to turn from your sin, to turn to Jesus alone for forgiveness, receiving him as both Savior and Lord. And when that happens, I love this, check this out. When that happens, you have the privilege of being able to call the creator of the universe Abba. Abba, a, a, a word which is perhaps best translated as Papa. Papa. And you are then placed in his family, his heavenly family, that will exist for all eternity. You have brothers and sisters all united by the same thing, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And it says this in 1 John 1.7. I think this in context today, this will make so much sense. 1 John 1.7 says, But if we walk in the light, as Jesus is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Some of you have experienced this firsthand, where the reality is that you have a far deeper relationship with members of your heavenly family than you do with your earthly family, right? Well, why is that? How could it possibly be that we have deeper fellowship with members of our heavenly family than with our earthly family because of this verse? What fellowship can light have with darkness? True fellowship is only possible when we are united in Jesus. He is what unites us. He is what brings us together. When you share that in common, you have everything in common that is necessary. I can hang out with somebody that, you know, I like sports, 
I don't do like stuff with my hands, like builds, like manly stuff, you know. Um, I do other stuff. But I can hang out with anybody, even somebody who's very different than me, because we have Jesus in common. That is the light that brings us together in unity. And young people, this is precisely why God's word says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Because you will not experience the fellowship and marriage that God intended for you because light, darkness doesn't work, doesn't go together. God intends for light and light to encourage and to exemplify fellowship together. Therefore, church, experience the family of God in its fullness. Invest in those relationships. Make it the priority that it is meant to be. Serve one another in love. Now, that being said, it is a family. And family is hard. Family involves hurt. And if you invest in the family of God, guess what? You're going to get your feelings hurt. Your pastor is probably going to hurt your feelings at some point in time. People are going to let you down, experience sanctity. But that becomes the incubator, that becomes the test tube whereby we experience sanctification, where we grow in holiness, where we grow to become more like Jesus. And it is here that we learn to forgive. It's here that we learn to extend grace and mercy. It's here that we learn to serve. It's here that we learn when we don't get our way not to be bitter and grumpy about it. Such is the preeminence of the family of God. So, exclude normal, expect to be misunderstood, and experience the family of God. Would you pray with me? Father, forgive us for the times when we have been satanic, when we have insisted on our own will rather than the will of Jesus, and we've actually been a hindrance to his purposes, just like Peter was and Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. And in essence, just as he made the same statement to his mother and to his brothers, God, forgive us for insisting on our, our way rather than your way, building our kingdom rather than your kingdom. And then God, may you encourage someone here this morning who's struggling with discouragement because they don't fit in in this world. Would you just reaffirm that that's okay? And that's the way it's supposed to be. And God, for those who are experiencing family division because of their faith, God, would you bring comfort to them? And I pray for salvation for those family members that they might experience the true fellowship of the family of God through Jesus Christ. And God, for all of us, may you revolutionize our view of the heavenly family and its significance in our lives and the role that we are to play in each one another's lives. We are to be interdependent. We need each other. God, help us to function in that way. And that doesn't happen by just showing up on Sunday and consuming. It happens by investing time, energy, relationship. So God, for where there is needed conviction of that this morning, I pray that you would do that. Overall, God, we just thank you for adoption into your family. We thank you that we can call the creator of the universe, Papa. 
and know you intimately. May we not take that for granted. May we not neglect it. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.